Did you know that every year about 100,000 men are widowed? A widow's grief is one thing, and a man's grief is another thing, because we each grieve differently. Today, I want to speak to Dr. Jim Meyer, who knows firsthand what it means to experience grief, the grief of becoming a widower. Hi, I'm Dr. Chuck Betters, and I'm the host today of the Help and Hope podcast which is produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Jim, you know what it is like to lose your wife and to struggle to find that new level of normal. I wanna thank you for being here. I want to ask you to maybe introduce yourself to our audience and tell us about what's going on in your life right now. Thank you, Jack. I've uh, been a pastor for the past 35 years with the Evangelical Free Church of America. Uh, pastor currently with my son. We co-pastor the Pocono Evangelical Free Church. I've also went back after being in the ministry for over a decade to get more counseling training, realizing how important that was. Received a master's and then uh, eventually a doctorate in the field, uh, wrestling with what does it look like to really help people as a shepherd a shepherd is more than somebody who preaches on Sunday. A shepherd is somebody who takes care of the flock. And so I became very concerned with what it looks like to to genuinely take care of people. Out of both my education and training, I started teaching at Karen University. I was teaching there for 23 years and teaching primarily in their master's in counseling program. I also developed a ministry to pastors and missionaries primarily called Discipleship Counseling Resources that came out of our church. Now that I've moved away from education and my wife, who was a third grade teacher, is moving away. She was in a Christian school, uh, is moving away from education. We're joining together to to really uh, grow the Discipleship Counseling Resource Ministry through our church. I'll be doing, I'll be starting seminars in October already have uh, a seminar I'll be doing in Atlantic City and a seminar I'll be doing in the Poconos starting in October and then various other ones already starting to be scheduled. So we're looking forward to that, doing a seminar on intimacy with God and how that's foundational for every every other thing in, our, in the Christian life. And then in Atlantic City, I'll be doing a, a training slash seminar on trauma. So that's a little bit about me. I lost my first wife after 22 and a half years of marriage to a car accident. My wife, uh, current wife, lost her husband to brain cancer, and we found each other and have been married now for 11 years. It is interesting that we expand Mark Inc. Ministries really all over the world with questions that people send in. I'm somewhat alarmed, if that's the right word, at the human pain that's out there the need for Christians and Christian leaders to wake up and to realize that we need counselors. We need people who can help uh, take somebody by the hand, as you mentioned a minute ago, and shepherd them and to walk them through the more difficult moments in their lives. You mentioned that you were a widower after what, 22 years of marriage? 22 and a half years of marriage. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, things seem to be very normal, in as normal as things could be in my life. My wife and I had just come to the point where we were empty nest. Our children were both in school at the time, and we were really enjoying it. And we had a 
discussion with each other three days before Rhonda passed away about how we were just really blessed to enjoy the time of Empty Nest and to really develop our relationship further. Uh, I was uh, preaching a series through Matthew 7, and I was coming to the point where I was preaching on building your house on the rock, and I read a text, or the text then talked about the rain beating upon the house. And as I studied that for the first time in in 22 and a half years plus of ministry, I was just driven to my knees in that moment and saying, Lord, is something going to happen this week? And that was on Sunday afternoon after I preached my morning message, I go and study in the afternoon. And two days later, my wife, who was the guidance counselor at Lehigh Valley Christian High School, didn't show up for work. And they called me and um, asked me if I knew where my wife was. And as I was frantically trying to figure out where she might be, I saw a, a, a state troop car coming up my driveway. And I knew something serious had happened at that point. And I, I was deeply impacted by going out there and realizing that something was wrong. And they told me, I said, is this about my wife? And they said, we need to go inside. And they, they, the, the two officers asked me to sit down and shared with me that my wife was gone. And at first it was shock and I, I hardly believed them. And I asked them, are you sure? And they said, you know, Mr. Meyer, we are, we're definitely sure it's your wife. Um, it's been confirmed. And that set forth for really uh, several years, a, a cycle of uh, severe depression. I struggled with depression deeply. I wouldn't call it clinical depression or a major depressant episode because it's related to grief, but it still was very real. I lost over 40 pounds and I grieved very deeply that loss and struggled in that pain for quite some time. It was uh, about a year into my, my process of grief that, that Kathy and I started communicating and met each other about 11 months after uh, Rhonda had passed away. We knew each other when we were young. But those 11 months before I met with Kathy were probably some of the loneliest times of my life and taught me about intimacy with God in a really deep way. We had two children. My, my wife had three children. We now have 11 grandkids with the 12th coming. So that's a special part of. How old were your two children? My son was um, in his early 20s and my daughter had just gone off to school. So she probably was 18, um, 18 years old. Were they with you at the time that you received this news? No, they were not. My daughter was in Wisconsin at, at a wilderness campus of Karen University. And my son was at the school at the time. My, my daughter was extremely impacted by the news. And I could, I could hear her breaking down and was very concerned. She had asthma and I was very concerned about the impact of the grief for her at the time and really struggled with that. My, my son hopped in his car and came home, which, which at that time, you know, worried me that he would, you know, being driving in that condition. So um, it was very, uh, very troubling. Um, my dad, who at that time was still alive, came over. He was the first one to come over. The police would not, the state troopers would not leave until a family member arrived. And, they waited until my, my dad came. And when he came, 
you know, we, we just, you know, he just wept with me and it was very, very powerful. I know one of the hardest things when we lost our son, Mark, was the fact that I could not fix things for the rest of my family. You know, to watch our kids hurt and my wife hurt. And I know as men, we like to fix things. But this was something that I could not fix. Did you experience this kind of pain? Yeah, I, you know, I was constantly struggling with the fact that there was no fix. Chuck, it's, it's interesting, as you study scripture, I developed a counseling model through the book of Job. As you look at Job's friends, one of the major mistakes they continued to make was they were trying to fix Job's grief. And so it's not only just fixing my kids, my my life, my but you know, you, you really want to sometimes fix the grief. And in the summer, my, my wife passed away in February. And in the in the summer, I started really studying the word of God and realized God didn't want to fix me. God wanted me to grieve well. And that's why I really shifted into the process of moving toward intimacy with God, which, by the way, was what God was trying to do with Job. You see at the very end in Job 42, Job goes from, I've heard you and now my eyes see you, speaking of the intimacy that he experienced with God. And God approached Job in a very different way than his friends did. God approached Job with question after question after question, starting in chapter 38, you know, where were you when, you know, and all those questions to really get Job thinking. And it moved Job to intimacy with God. And, and that's what I find with, with myself was in the beginning, I was trying to fix it. And then as I started pursuing God and pursuing his word, I realized that God's design and desire in the Christian life through grief is to bring us into intimacy with him. You mentioned a minute ago, 11 months after you lost your wife, that you went into a, a really deep depression. And I'm assuming that you were taking on responsibilities in your home that were never really your responsibilities prior. What was it like making those day-to-day adjustments in your house without your wife? Yeah, it, it was quite difficult. I, I think that one of my solutions, one of my fixes to my grief was to get very busy. So anything that got me busy was something that I didn't mind. That was kind of my, my fix to it. Again, not God's fix to it. So some of the, some of the responsibilities that ended up falling upon me that, that Rhonda had taken over, I didn't really see them as burdens. I just jumped in. and But then... You know, when I would come home to a dark home, those would be the moments where the pain was most severe. And it felt like a a darkness just kind of overwhelming, you know, me, my soul in those moments. And and again, that's where from February to, to May and June time, I really had to make that shift and understand that that trying to fix the grief and trying to fix the depression. That was another thing I was trying to fix was the depression. And, and you know, Chuck, I, I, I met my current wife 11 months later in January of the following year. And, you know, we got married in July of the following year. So, you know, about a year and a half. 
But that didn't change the struggle with depression. The depression really was a battle for close to about three years in my situation. And so just falling back in love, which was something I never thought would happen, you know, wasn't just a solution to the grief. The grief needed to carry out for me several years. And it was easier with my wife because she had lost her husband. So she was very sensitive to the fact that we were both in the, still in the process of grieving, even though we were remarried. I've had the opportunity with some of my close friends because I'm at that age where I lose good friends. Watching really good friends going home to be with the Lord, uh, some of them suddenly have left us. And even recently, some of my closer male friends have become widowers. If you had the opportunity to talk to them right now, right now when they're fresh, they're just beginning the journey. They're just starting to understand that they're going to come home to that dark room every day. And they're going to look around for their spouse and she's not there. I think you can identify with those feelings. What, what would you say to those men as they're really just beginning their journey? I would probably say very little and ask more questions. I'd like Job's friends. Yes. I think I would say very little and just let them talk. And and I find that that's, that can be very cathartic to, you know, just be able to express what's going on. One of the things that I learned um, after, again, I'm, I'm, one of those, one of my sinful tendencies is to fix things. And it comes from often from pride and not humility. And, and even so, the Lord graciously shows us that over and over again. And one of my fixes was, uh, as a professor at that time, was I'll just study this out and figure it out. And, you know, I had taught on grief and uh, worked as a pastor with many grief situations. So I figured I could figure it out. I read many books and did a lot of study and a lot of thinking and a lot of processing. And, you know, what I realized through that journey is every, everyone's grief journey is very different. And, you know, Jesus recognized that in, in John chapter 11, when he ministered to both Martha and Mary in their grief. With, with Martha, we have him saying, I'm the resurrection and the life, and this amazing theological truth coming out of his interaction. That's interesting. Martha started the same place. Master, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, Mary does the same thing in John 11. She says, you know, Master, if you were not here, my brother would not have died. And yet we find Jesus emotionally connecting with her. So with Martha, it was his cognitive connection and his spiritual connection. With Mary, it was just an emotional connection. And I find that your question is really important because it's, it's, it's about people being sensitive to that. This is their journey, and we need to join them in their journey. And we, we don't need to have a formula but we need to be open to really pursuing and asking questions. Precisely. When you see a friend who is walking through this very painful time and he's making bad decisions and, and you as a good friend can see those decisions and the price tag that they're going to have and that the price tag will actually increase their pain and sorrow instead of help them heal. What, what do you do about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, again, there are certain sinful issues that have some clear biblical responses that we need to, you know, we need to come alongside and really help um, 
you know, redirect them. And so I'm not, before I say what I'm going to say, I'm qualifying it as I recognize that when there is sin, we have to biblically deal with sin. On the flip side of that, I think that when people who are going through grief or other very serious situations in their life, and they start making poor decisions. Let, let me give you an example. Let's say somebody immediately starts dating anyone and everyone, or you know, would be an example of a of man who's just lost his, and people are scratching their head. I, I don't scratch my head. I assume that there's that's a symptom and there's an underlying issue that touches off the pain. And so what I, I do, and again, I'm a trained counselor. What I do is I often pursue somebody in that situation with, you know, what do you think is really underneath this decision that you've made or this decision that you seem to be making? And usually, Chuck, what I try to do is I really try to connect with their pain and process their pain and then talk about what would be a solution for their pain? Because what they're doing is they're going with a symptom to solve their pain. They're trying to, um, they're trying to often minimize their pain by jumping into something else or, or having a, 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 you know, a relationship that's inappropriate. You know, it, it, there's all kinds of ways to stifle the pain, but in the end, the pain just, as you were pointing out, gets greater. And so I try to tap into that pain and talk about what would be a, a true answer for that pain. And it comes really back to intimacy with Christ. And uh, when, when I get them in that direction and moving in that direction, then, then often the mistakes that they're making take care of themselves. Rather than going the harsh biblical discipline approach, I start on the other end of things and really trying to help them to see that th there's a much better solution for their pain. You mentioned in the first part that there was an ongoing developing relationship with the Lord. I, I want to explore that a little bit more. How did you cultivate your relationship with the Lord in those very lonely, dark first months without your wife? Well, first of all, um, my struggle with God wasn't that he took Rhonda. I accepted his will in that. My, my struggle was that God wasn't there in a physical way. And I really battled with that, with God, that he wasn't there in a physical way. Jesus is um, omnipresent God. You know, he says, lo, I am with you always. But that is the side of him that is deity. The side of him that his man is at the right hand of the Father and I wanted him to reach down his right hand and touch me. That's what I wanted from Jesus. And that's not Jesus's role right now. And so I had to really learn to accept that Jesus was there in a real spiritual way. And I started pursuing Jesus based on truth of why he was with me, why I was not alone, why the truth of, lo, I will never forsake you, was true in my situation. <clears throat> and as I started studying that, and I actually, in the summer, preached a series, did some writing on this, I really started to see how um, <clears throat> I transfer my marital relationship and what Rhonda gave me to Christ. 
And what I needed to do was I needed to receive and accept from Christ what he gives. And when that happened, it, it brought some very significant, deep, intimate times with Jesus. Didn't take away the depression. But here's what it did. I learned that the fruit of the Spirit is not taken away by depression or by grief. I learned that the fruit of the Spirit is there in spite of. And so I learned to pursue the love, the joy, the peace. We'll just start with those three. But I learned that I could have joy in the midst of my grief. I learned that I could have the peace of God in the midst of my grief. And it didn't take away the grief and it didn't take away the depression, but it changed it and started me on a path to pursue those biblical blessings that we have, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the peace of God, the joy of the Lord. How do you begin to establish a relationship with another person romantically? You know, talk to that man out there who wants to get involved with someone else, but has children that maybe don't understand why he wants to do that or why he wants to do that so soon. You know, I have a feeling that your circumstance is a little different from what most men would have to go through. You met someone who experienced grief herself. You seem to have known her from before. So maybe that's a little bit different, but when friends encourage the widower, maybe a year later, isn't it time for you to go and meet someone, some other person, some other people, maybe establish some companionship? How does a man do that? How does he handle that? That's a really hard question. And I, you know, as I was kind of thinking on this and struggling with it, uh, again, I would approach rather than telling somebody what to do in their grief to pursue them and to pursue the topic. There are certain topics that even close friends and people I would have expected to didn't pursue with. And um, I think that those are topics that often are, quote, taboo. I, for most of my married life, and particularly the last 17 years of Rhonda and I being married, God just blessed us in intimacy, both sexually and in other ways. And that being gone was very, very difficult. And I, I really didn't have anyone to process that with. And I was even embarrassed to say I was struggling. And by the grace of God, he protected me and protected Kathy and I when we got together. But my point being is I sure understand the struggles. And, and what I think a person really needs, Chuck, is, is, is not a specific direction or a specific formula as to, okay, it's been a year, now you, you can start dating again. I think what they really need is somebody to come alongside them and, and in a very confidential, and that's key, confidential, in a very confidential way to start talking about um, some of the battles that they're facing as a single man. And I think it was very difficult, particularly having been a pastor and a professor, for people to see me as a single man. There were many people who ministered to me very, very deeply. So I want to make very clear, several of my colleagues did a fantastic job at, at, at a school where you're a professor in counseling. Obviously, they're, they're very trained. And I had a close friend who really was there for me at any moment, at any time. But... Those are the things that 
um, I've really committed to help people through is to, to kind of wrestle with, you know, how do we go about finding companionship? And that's a discussion. That's not a formula. There's a relationship that a person has with a spouse that is so intimate that it is not shared with someone else. I mean, there are things between a man and a woman that you just don't go around sharing and, and suddenly it's gone. Suddenly that dimension of your life, is, it's no longer there and, and you're alone. And I've been asked this question many times. What does a man do when sexually he no longer has a partner? That, that was the hardest part for me. I really didn't know what to do. And secondly, I was frustrated with the scriptures because the scriptures aren't as clear as I would like them to be. It was like, Lord, just tell me and I will do it. <laughs> and, and, and other people would just say, you know, well, I can't do that. And, you know, it's very clear that God doesn't want us to, uh, to fornicate or, you know, move into those areas that are improper. I think that the temptations that weren't there at all all of a sudden were there, and that's where I said it was the grace of God. I'm not going to give you a clear answer, but I will give you what was clear for me. I had to pray through it. I, I, I think that, you know, just as Jesus speaks of uh, to the disciples of the demon that they couldn't cast out, he says, this doesn't come out without fasting and prayer. I, I think that that's an area where uh, particularly men who are now single, most will need to concentrate their energy in prayer. And I, I think that, that that's really an important discipline that needs to be applied. It, it is, and it's something I've said to not just single men, I've said it to married men who are struggling, let's say, with something like pornography. I, I asked them the question, if you're really genuinely praying at that time, could you be viewing those you know, those uh, images. And the response is, no, I couldn't be doing that if I was genuinely praying. And my point is, is, well, if Jesus is with you in that and he's there with you, isn't it time to put that aside? You know, for me, that wasn't the issue, but there were other issues that I really struggled in, in my thinking and my processes. And, and how do I handle that? And you know, the other issue, and I, and I realize that, you know, people get offended by the terminology, so understand that we're talking about from a counseling point of view here, is the issue of masturbation. That's a very, very difficult issue. And unfortunately, they're not as clear answers as people would like. And so uh, the response to that is, you know, you really mean in that moment intimacy with Christ. Otherwise, the enemy will come in and that I know, the enemy will come in and use those sexual temptations to take you down a path of destruction. Was there a particular man and others alongside of you who maybe became some sort of accountability partner for you? Do you did you confide in these individuals your own personal struggles? Uh, fortunately, they didn't get to a point where I felt like I needed to confide, but unfortunately, they were there and they were real. And I was, from my point of view, probably too embarrassed to confide. So, Chuck, I'm going to put the responsibility on the other person because mm -hmm. I know I've been on that side. Now, that doesn't mean people understood that and knew that. 
I had a very close friend who would have genuinely talked through that with me. And I know that when he first saw me after uh, Rhonda passed away, he just wept. I mean, just just wept um, because he was that deep of a friend and knew the pain I was in. And, and he was truly a, a Jonathan David type of friendship that I had. And I'm very grateful for that. I also had a really good relationship with my dad. And we could talk, but I'm going to put that on the other person. So I'm not going to put that on the person who's grieving. I'm going to challenge, particularly in this venue, I'm going to challenge those of us who have the opportunity to come alongside mm-hmm. and say, ask the hard question. Mm-hmm. Ask about those sexual issues that you know are there. You know, a person has been married, uh, you know, and had, in my case, had a very good, healthy sexual relationship well that when that is gone just like that for me it was a car accident so it was gone that that is going to be a struggle you know a question that i find hard to answer from a layman's perspective because you are a pastor is the role of the church what ought to be or should be the role that members of the church play when it comes to someone who experiences sudden grief or sudden loss like you did, I know the reason I'm asking this question is because I know that as a pastor, many of the people in my church moved away from me. They they didn't want to be close because it was too much for many of them to bear. You know, when we lost our son, Mark, they, they really feared saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. So, They did nothing. Many of them, now there were a few who put the surgical gown on, so to speak, and went into the operating room with me and were willing to get bloodied up, but most did not. And long-term, basically, few did. So, So the question to you is, as a grief counselor, you're addressing a group of people in the church who have experienced a good friend or someone in the church who, who knows a good friend who've ex, who's experienced sudden loss? What, what should their role be? And, and I'd come back, Chuck, to be a good listener. I, I mean, I think that that's a really major factor. Uh, people who are good listeners who come alongside, you don't feel like they're abandoning you because uh, it, it, particularly if they're patient, they just let you talk. Notice, coming back to Job's friends, notice when Job started to talk, what they'd try to do, they try to correct him, they try to fix him, because they didn't like some of the things he was saying. I mean, there were some pretty, pretty strong things that, that Job said, if you study from chapter three through chapter, you know, 37, you know, he's, he, he even says, I wish I was never born, you know, he bemoans in, in many laments God and what God has done. And, his friends, rather than coming alongside and listening, tried to correct him, tried to redirect him, tried to fix. And so uh, what, what we have, in, to me, in, in the most important element of grief is a person, when they are ready, needs to be listened to. And so it's, it's, it's about being ready to ask the question. It's about being ready to come alongside. It's about being re- willing to... Um, I had one couple that 
uh, I think it was once a week or once a month, they just would take me out to eat, knowing that I was fixing my own meals. <laughs> they just took me out to eat. I, I do understand what you're saying. I, I, I particularly experienced in certain circumstances, people moving away and feeling like they were no longer what they were before. Uh, but then again, Chuck, I was no longer what I was before. You know, I, I had changed too. So I realized that and tried to show grace to them. Uh, but that can be very painful. So the challenge is, is, yeah, come alongside. Isn't that what the, the word encouragement means? To come alongside? That's the picture of, of, of encouragement in scripture is that, you know, rather than, and by the way, the, the word encourage in the New Testament, the Greek word can mean both exhort and encourage. The problem is, is we try to do it with the finger pointing at what's wrong rather than coming along and putting our arm around and really joining them in their pain. And so I'm going to talk about the one ingredient that I think is crucial to be able to be a good listener, and that is empathy. That is just really allowing your heart to feel the pain and sit in the pain with the person. And empathy to me is key to that answer. I know you're focusing a lot on leadership and ministering to those who are pastors and missionaries and other church leaders who are walking through their own chambers of grief. But what makes grief in a leader's life different than grief in an ordinary layman's life? Well, first of all, and, and I wouldn't just say it's grief, but my experiencing in, in uh, over 20 years of counseling pastors and missionaries is that uh, they often, Christian leaders are often isolated and as a result of that, they feel like they can't have those deep, intimate relationships, particularly in their ministries. And I understand that. And, and it can cause even deeper pain when, when you lose a deep friendship, um, which, which I've experienced and it happens. But I've often asked the question, particularly toward when we're moving a, a, away from the problem in counseling and we're moving toward the future, I often ask the question of a pastor or a missionary, um, who do you go to? And, and the answer often might be their spouse. Um, that's often the answer, oh, I go to my spouse. But more often than not, the answer was, Jim, it's you. And, and I point out that, that that's not sufficient enough. And, and so what, what I would say to leaders is you need a network of friends. You need a network of relationships that are beyond those who you're ministering to, where you can go and really be fed and in the context of grief, uh, really have somebody empathize and share your grief with you. You know, I've been a church leader for over 50 years now, and there's, there's a sense in which, you know, he's, he's got it all together. He has all the answers. He's strong in the pulpit. He's strong in his teaching and blah, 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 and on and on it goes. And many pastors will fit that bill. I know when we lost our son, Mark, I didn't know who to turn to for help. Because the questions I had were on the faithfulness of God, on the love of God. The things that ran through my head during that time were, Lord, you know, you're supposed to be my heavenly father. And I'm a father. And I would never treat my children this way. 
I would never allow my children to go through this kind of sorrow. So why are you? And, you know, questioning the love of God and questioning his faithfulness. And I had, I had no one to turn to because whoever I would turn to in the church, it could shatter their understanding of faith. You know, I did have a brother who is a president of a seminary and contacted him. And I said, you know, I'm having a real faith struggle right now. And I need to run some things by you. And that man met me several times and allowed me to spew things that really kind of bordered on blasphemy, things that really questioned God's love for me, et cetera. And I think pastors and missionaries, you know, they're in a tough place because they don't have that transparency and vulnerability with their congregations that they should have. But, you know, then as I look back on it, one of the things that I did was I made a choice. I chose to grieve in front of the congregation and allow them to walk the journey with me. I remember I preached a series of messages called Surprised by Suffering, which were my own struggles, all of them. All of the struggles that I was experiencing came out in the pulpit. I remember telling my family that I don't have much that I can offer you right now because I don't have any answers for this. But listen to my preaching because the end result of my week-long struggle with what I share on Sunday mornings is my preaching. Listen to that carefully. It'll take you back, I hope, to what the scriptures say. And we believe those scriptures by faith and that they are our lifeline. Does that sound like a reasonable approach for leaders to take? Well, I, I, I do think that that what God has given us, he wants us to share. So if God has given you grief, uh, what you say here is very powerful. You shared your grief with your congregation. I, I surely was an example of that, particularly in the summer when I started preaching on intimacy with God. I used my grief as kind of that forum to kind of share what I was learning about intimacy with God. And so you use the term suffering, I use the term intimacy, but I'm sure our messages often reflected similar themes. And I, I think that that can be very, very important. I, but I also would say, and, and to me, this is something I, I constantly emphasize, God hasn't called us into isolation. And so what you did by pursuing somebody who would talk with you was vitally important. And so that, that to me is really key, is that you have a place to go where you can talk about your grief with somebody. As you said, even in like some of the lamenting Psalms were inspired by the Spirit of God, but don't include truth about God. You know, sometimes when you read Lamentations 3, you're shocked at Jeremiah's anger with God for, through the first 18 verses, as he says, God, you're a bear, you're tearing me apart, you're doing this, uh, you've broken my teeth with gravel, you know, all the things that he says. Well, of course, a little bit later, he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And so it, it is that lamenting process that I think our culture often has lost, that lamenting process that allowed Jeremiah to recognize and come to that place. And then he goes back to, to some more lamenting. Uh, but to me, having a healthy place to, to share 
that where you know you won't be attacked or won't be used against you. And, and you know, frankly, I think that for many Christian leaders, they need to, to have a Christian counselor, a good, godly, biblical Christian counselor who can listen to them. When I counsel pastors, I, I don't need to preach at them. They already know the word. But I, I need them to rediscover their relationship with God more often than not. And, and that's what's key. I know those of us in the ministry, especially Sharon and I, we like to talk about the gift of wrestling, where somehow or another we Christians have learned that to beat on God's chest is somehow immoral, it's unbelieving, it's faithlessness. And we teach just the opposite. The night that we were called to the hospital, we didn't know whether or not our son was dead. We had to pass the accident scene. You know, when we got to the hospital, we were informed that he was gone and that his girlfriend was also killed. I remember my wife turned and grabbed me and started screaming and beating on my chest. And she kept saying, no, 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 no. And all I, all I could do was hold her. And she was just beating on my chest. She just wanted to beat the closest thing to her. And, and at that point, it was me. You know, we like to equate that to wrestle with God is similar to that, where we turn to him in those moments of grief and those deep moments where we don't have answers and we can't fix it. We beat on his chest. And all I could do in that moment was hold my wife. All I could do was to put my arms around her and hold her. Sometimes, you know, I think that that's what God does. He puts his arms around us. He holds us. He tells us it's going to be okay. All the while we were beating on his chest and screaming, no, no, no. And I think that's what the Lamentations are all about. I think that's what Jeremiah's whole life was all about. And I want to encourage those who might be listening to this to hear what this man is saying to you about that intimacy with Christ. I want to encourage you that that intimacy with Christ does not mean that you don't beat on his chest. You know, it's in, in the church, Jim, that's the place we are supposed to question. Jim, there were people where it was too uncomfortable for them to hear me say some of the things that I said. I mean, for example, I stood up one Sunday and said, I want you to know that this week my struggle was that I didn't know whether or not God exists. I didn't know whether or not my career was one big lie, whether or not I misled you. And we had people who said, I'm sorry, Chuck, I can't take that. And they walked away, they left the church. But for everyone who walked away, it seemed like 10 came. And we had a major boom in our church because they never heard such transparency. And I really believe Mark Inc. Ministries exist for the purpose of battling the plasticity of Christianity, that we're all somewhat robots, that we never question some of the hard things in Scripture that we have to deal with. And I'm going to share one more thought with you, and then I want you to end our time together by talking to that man who's sitting there right now listening to this because he picked up this resource because he's a widower. And I want you to talk to that man 
But I want to share one more thing. We talk a lot about Job today. And shortly after we lost Mark, my leadership sent me away for about three weeks. My wife and I, and the two of us, we, we went to the mountains of Idaho, where I was to craft the vision statement of this ex- exploding church and, and where we were going to go in the next five years or so. And I don't know whether they did me a favor or not, but we really there on the base of the Teton Mountains, I'm kind of looking down into the valley and we're surrounded by all kinds of wildlife. And it's the most beautiful part of the earth that there must be. I'm sitting there on the deck of that porch and I'm weeping and beating on God's chest and questioning his love and questioning everything about him and questioning this and questioning that. And I I opened my Bible to Job 38, not on purpose. It was just God led me to Job 38. Now, Job 38 starts out with, and I'm, I'm translating now. Okay, Chuck, it's time for you to shut your mouth. It's time for you to listen. You've been moaning and groaning and complaining this whole time. And now it's time for me to ask you some questions. Of course, all of this serves as an introduction to Job 39, which takes on the faithfulness of God. And where were you when I set the mountains in place? Where were you when? Where were you when I did this? And where were you when I did that? And he he asks a series of questions. And as I'm reading those, I'm looking out into the Teton Mountains, looking down into the valley, and I'm, I'm watching the very things he's talking about. I'm watching a hawk, watching an eagle. I'm watching wildlife. I'm watching the mountains. I'm watching the clouds move over the mountains and through the mountains. I'm watching a storm on the other side and clear as day on, on the opposite side. And I'm watching... All the things described in Job 38, man, I got to tell you, that was humbling. Uh, That was a time where he didn't have to tell me to shut up. There was nothing I could say because I kept asking, where are you? Where were you when? And he's showing me right there in front of my eyes that because of the faithfulness of God, some of these things come to us clearly and, and clearer when we struggle when we struggle and when we lament and when we question and when we wrestle, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would like to speak to whoever would be watching this and say, you have a choice and and that's really important. And, and, and we see that reflected in your story. Um, It's reflected in my board sending me away too and struggling. That was the, probably the most difficult time of my grief was when I got sent on a sabbatical for four weeks, and I similarly struggled. But at the same time, and for me, it was on the beach, came to a real understanding of the fact that God is. And and to me, when you truly embrace the truth that God is, and that God is eternal, and God is not temporal, life life in this context with death is temporal. We have eternal life, but we have a choice, and that's to turn to God, turn away from God. And if you're passive, you're turning away. And my challenge would be, in these instances, it's going to be hard, but turn your heart to God. It is 
in essence, what we see over and over of those who are godly in Scripture, in crisis, in suffering, and in grief, they ultimately turn to God. And to me, that is the answer for our hearts. That is simple, but don't be passive. Be active. Be intentional. Understand that God wants you to actively turn to him in this moment. And that's where your power is. That's where grace is. That's where the pain will be used for the glory and honor of God. Dr. Jim Meyer, I I want to thank you so much for your willingness to come and share your heart with us. You can hear more stories. That's just Jim's on a variety of topics when you are finding yourself in pain, in need of help and hope. Marking Ministries, we want you to think of us. Markinc.org is the place to go. M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. Remember, it's .org and not .com. And each of our Help and Hope resources address life crises that are often experienced, as you've heard today, in isolation. It's difficult for people to know how to help. And we like to tell stories of people who have walked the walk, who are down the road from us a ways and and are able to look back and minister to those who are coming behind them. So each of our stories, every single one of our stories, offers encouragement, not only to the one experiencing the crisis, but also serves to equip those who love them and want to help them. We offer all of our resources for free because people who share our vision to offer help and hope underwrite the production costs. So if this resource or if any of our resources have encouraged you, we'd like you to consider joining us in a partnership of ministry. And you can give by visiting Mark Inc. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C dot org. And I want to thank you for listening. Check out our Help and Hope Library and all of the resources we offer. And Jim, I want to thank you again. It's been so good to have you here ministering through your own pain and your own sorrow. Thanks for being so transparent. We really appreciate it.